0: General nerdery.
1: So I start talking to you on, I don't know, Thursday, Friday, whenever I last saw you. I'm like, hey, what's our episode going to be? And you're like, oh, how about about Empty Child and Doctor Dances? I'm like, oh, good, 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 good. In the middle of the plague, we're going to do an episode about a plague.
0: (laughs) I didn't even think about that part of it.
1: But it actually ends up working out, because uh, now we get to talk about Christopher Eccleston's finest hour, as far as I'm concerned. I would agree. I would absolutely agree. Finest hour and a half. I just watched it. It takes takes about an hour and a half. (laughs) Anyways, welcome to General Nerdery. We're your generals of nerdery. I'm Zach. I'm Tyler. Uh, And we're here because we like things. And in this case, specifically, Doctor Who, Christopher Eccleston, and... uh, Empty Child and Dr. Dances. But before we get to that... Before. Before. Tyler, what have you been reading? We say this week, but we recorded two days ago. What have you been reading in the last two days?
0: Yeah, so... uh, This time it's really easy. Because I did almost nothing but podcast stuff in between uh, the last time we talked and now. So i watched the 1997 movie the relic i it's a horror monster movie set in the chicago museum of natural history based on the 1995 novel the same name um okay i watched some doctor who and i got outside for a little bit and played some pokemon go and that's it
1: i have not played enough pokemon go lately uh, it is unreliable in my basement apartment whether it wants to know where I am with my GPS location. Mm. Um, let's see, what have I been doing? I've. I, I had all of this and I immediately sat down. Oh. Um, I. Bought lightsabers. Huh? I, I bought lightsabers. All right. Uh, from there's Tommy a website Moore. called, Ul- yes, <laughs> so that's the plan here, in the talkie. There's a website called Ultra Sabers. There's another one called Saber Forge, but I went through Ultra Sabers, which does hand-built lightsabers. Or I don't know if hand-built, but like custom-built lightsabers that are durable enough that you can whack things with them. Yay. Yay for whacking yes. ability. <laughs> and I mean, it like lights up and it's got sounds and you can make all sorts of modifications and stuff. And uh, Cece and I have been looking at these and talking about getting lightsabers for five years. I mean, as you may have noticed in this podcast about being giant fucking nerds, we're giant fucking nerds and Star Wars is a big thing for us specifically. So we... Uh, I mean, we have Jedi outfits to wear to the star Wars movies. And we've been looking at these and not get doing it and not doing it and not doing it because it turns out that they're a lot of money and they're not the world's most useful item mm-hmm. because they're not real lightsabers. But my buddy Malark, who I do my other podcast with him and his wife bought some. And I was like, you know what? I'm getting married in like a week. This is going to be my wedding gift.
0: Yeah. And
1: it, and it was, you know, because all, all of the wedding plans kind of went out the window of the way of global fucking pandemic. Mm-hmm. So like the, the we told the guy that's there, he's doing bracelets instead of rings, but we told him like, hey, take your time. Uh, we asked you to do a really fancy thing in a really short time frame. So if you need more, that's fine. Don't worry about it. the The big ceremony's not happening till next year but we're still going to get married. And since the big ceremony is not happening till next year, I got a little more funding than I usually would. And I uh, sold off some comic books mm-hmm. because I have so many comic books. <laughs> I have so many. And used that money and bought us some lightsabers. Cause fuck it. We're in the middle of a global pandemic and I get to go marry this amazing person. So might as well have fun with both of those things because none of our other plans were working out how we were, you know, spending the last year planning. That's awesome. Hello. Apparently, this is my therapy session about my wedding. <laughs> Thank you for listening.
0: No, that's really cool. So,
1: damn. Now I want a lightsaber, but... Oh, I'll link you. <laughs> I'll, I'll link it on our social media. Ultra Sabers is freaking sweet. It gets real expensive real fast. I warn you that. But, like, it's worth it.
0: Uh, is there anything super particular you had done with your lightsaber?
1: We went with two of the more... We went with the single-bladed lightsabers, both of us. And we went with one of the more expensive lines because the, the starting price ranges anywhere from, like, 70 to 200 bucks. Okay. Uh, but we learned when we were, like, fucking around, and I mean, you can just spend easily an hour doofing around on the website looking at the different stuff, that the prices end up not being as wildly variable as the starting prices because Mm. a lot of the more expensive ones come with a lot of the the special doodahs built in Mm -hmm. while on like the cheap ones you are like, yes, I do want to include the thing that lets me clip it onto my belt or etc, etc. Right. Uh, and then CC chose a kind of bluish purple, like somewhere in between the standard blue and the Mace Windu color. And I went with one called Sunrider's Destiny because I'm a giant nerd, even for nerds. And Nomi Sunrider was a really sweet Jedi from comics I read as a kid.
0: I'm, I'm on their website right now. I am going to find it.
1: Uh, Yeah, it's kind of a bluish-green color. Uh, Nomi Sunrider is from the comics Tales of the Jedi. She becomes the Jedi Grandmaster by the end of them. Her daughter becomes a Jedi Grandmaster. Her granddaughter becomes a Jedi Grandmaster. And Bastilla Shan, who is the Grandmaster in Old Republic, is also a descendant. So there's just like four or five generations of badass Jedi women leading the order during this era all thanks to Nomi Sunrider so yeah I'm getting her fucking lightsaber that's that's blade color though so that's oh okay gotcha
0: yeah I I could see how you could spend a long long time on here already as I'm scrolling up and down on all of these things oh my Uh, god it was
1: originally intended to be a surprise that I was just gonna pop up and be like look what I got you but then uh, a friend, uh, Malark's wife, was like, Oh, we have some discounts if you want it. And CC was like poking me, being like, Hey, they have some 10% off coupons. Ooh. And I was like, Okay, so I already had this planned. Um, why don't you just develop, like, make your own instead? Which is great because I was close on what she wanted. Mm-hmm. But what she came up with was legitimately better than what I was like making for her nice yeah awesome mine was cool too (laughs) uh but yeah that's my biggest new thing
0: i'm very excited
1: about i think about it a lot
0: that's awesome i i'm gonna have to like close this window right now or else i'm just gonna spend (laughs) this entire podcast making myself a lightsaber
1: I definitely got the, like, they're like, do you want it, like, lightweight or mid-grade or heavy-grade? And I was like, give me the heaviest grade of, like, lightsaber blade that you can get. And they're like, it's twice as heavy. And I'm like, that's fine. And she CC gives me this weird look. I'm like, oh, come on. Tell me we're not going to whack these against just, like, everything. <laughs> like, I do not want to break these blades. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, there's so many cool options. Oh, uh, yeah, and there's double-bladed, and there's the weird, like, Kylo Ren ones with the extra like tiny blades that you're super gonna stab yourself in the leg with. Still so cool. Um, <laughs> uh, a friend of mine found an Etsy page that does custom blades that can fit into these kind of lightsabers. So you can get like a katana shaped blade or like the dark saber oh. blade or an axe. Okay. And I really wish I had not fallen down this rabbit hole of holy shit cool things that I really can't justify buying after this one. Right? Also, uh,
0: as cool as all these single-bladed hilts are, I'm not too impressed with the double-bladed. I just scrolled through them very quickly.
1: Yeah, some of the fancier ones, you can um, just get two of them and get a a connector that can make a cool double-blade. But for the most part, yeah, I've I've always preferred single-blade lightsabers anyways. Like, the first time Darth Maul ever pops up with it, that's super cool. But, yeah. But I've... I mean, I I realize mine is foam, but I have fought with a double-bladed sword before, and it's not actually that fun. <laughs> it's one thing if you've got, like, the full staff, and you can hold the whole thing and do all the stuff you're supposed to do with it, and just go, like, Goku's extendo staff from Dragon Ball on the people. Mm-hmm. But if you try that with a lightsaber, you're literally going to cut your own hands off. Lightsabers are dangerous enough as it is.
0: <laughs> uh Agreed. I would definitely accidentally kill myself with a lightsaber. <laughs> Like, it would be one of the best ways I could ever go
1: out, but... Oh, yeah. If you're going to die, dying by way of lightsaber is not bad. But it's like... Uh, it's an in elegant. A <laughs> New Hope... Oh, yes. For a more civilized age. <laughs> uh, in New Hope, Obi-Wan gives Luke the lightsaber. First thing he does is stick it right towards his face. <sighs> like... And clearly he doesn't know, but still, just who, oh boy? Oh, that is asking for trouble.
0: Yeah, that that could have ended really, really poorly and quickly for the entire series.
1: <laughs> just, just imagine Obi Wan Kenobi being like, "I have been hiding out in this motherfucking desert for nineteen years," and he kills himself ten seconds in. <laughs> Way to go, Luke. You really are your father's son. Oh, shit.
0: Then it would have to be
1: Obi-Wan off to kick some ass. (laughs)
0: Alternate universe. I should have
1: done this 19 fucking fucking years ago. (laughs) Uh,
0: Uh, Sweet. You got any news for us today? I do have some news. Uh, We went over the biggest things already because we recorded two days ago.
1: Someday we'll get back on our normal recording schedule. In theory, today is that day.
0: In theory, uh, I do have a few <laughs> things, though, mostly kind of smaller things. But All right, uh, that's fine. Denis Villeneuve has set, said, when speaking with Empire Magazine, that he spent an entire year working on the sandworm design for Dune.
1: We still don't know what it looks like, but the biggest I that thing was neat. I learned—the biggest thing I learned from this—is how to pronounce that guy's name. <laughs>
0: I think that's right.
1: <laughs> the, I uh, well, don't another know way of for pronouncing sure. that guy's name. <laughs> oh god, we were recording yesterday on uh, Art of War Gaming, and we were doing a bunch of um, a bunch of German names. Mm, mm-hmm. And it turns out I am really bad at German. <laughs>
0: I'm not sure how close I am, but I don't think I'm super far off.
1: But to the point of your news thing, as opposed to my wild distractions here, I have trouble viewing the Sandworms as anything other than the David Lynch Sandworms. I mean, that's how they're illustrated on the books, even. Mm-hmm. That, Ill- that that version is perfect. I do not blame him for spending a year, because if the Sandworms look wrong... We're all going to be pissed? Yeah, then that movie is ruined. Like We are watching this movie for a lot of reasons, but it's mostly the Sandworms. Um, Agreed. And I I feel for the guy because he doesn't want to just mimic the sandworms from the 80s. I get that. But if he goes too far afield, it's going to get compared probably unfavorably from the super cool looking sandworms from the 80s. So I'm curious. He says he spent a whole year working on this. I wonder how much of that is just like the tiniest little tweaks
0: uh, it sounded like he was taking um, as many things into account as he could, including... I mean, the the uh, feeding cycle and everything of the sandworms is discussed pretty thoroughly in the book, so he actually tried to think about that is what
1: it sounds like. Thorough is kind of the best description of Dune in one word right there. <laughs> or fucked. Like, the, the, the two <laughs> options, and both are accurate. Um... Yeah, that's... There's no way you do a Dune movie, particularly by 2020, when it's had 60, almost 60 years at this point, to become like the most iconic science fiction book out there Mm -hmm. without it being a major passion project. So I am not surprised that stuff like A Year for the Fucking Worms a thing. And that's about it for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's we're, getting, we're hitting all the sci-fi notes today.
0: Uh, let's see. There is a release date for the new Muppets miniseries that Disney is going to do for Disney+.
1: Plus. Uh, I have not heard about this. What is this?
0: Uh, July 31st. It's a six episode miniseries that is an unscripted behind the scenes look of what it takes to make a Muppets streaming series.
1: It's time to start the music. It's time to light the lights. lights. Oh, my God. Uh, it's time um, to meet the Muppets on the Muppet Show on tonight. Muppet Show tonight. Oh, we're covering all my favorite things, and I will be singing that song for the next three days now.
0: Muppets in recent years have been very hit or miss.
1: Yes. I watched The Muppets, just the most recent Muppet movie. Not the most recent, the the second most recent. The one that uh, the guy from How I Met Your Mother wrote. Right, that one was pretty good. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I never saw the sequel. I always meant to, and it just slipped through the cracks. That one had Tina Fey, so I was going to enjoy it. Like, the Muppets and Tina Fey together is such a good idea to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, The last show they tried
0: was just kind of weird and sad.
1: Yeah, I watched the first episode or two. I had moments I laughed at. I, I've mentioned it before. The mockumentary style is not my favorite style. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the best joke they had on the first like two or three episodes was where they made fun of doing a mockumentary style show. Right. And then that, that was it. Um, I don't... There is a sense of ennui to Kermit a lot, but I don't want... Tired, sad, rebound girlfriend Kermit. No, like there, there, there is a balance between like how sad you can make the frog and still make it entertaining. Uh, I, I'm thinking of Frank Oz. They asked him about it, and Frank Oz is very willing to criticize the people who do the Muppets once he quit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they asked him about the most uh, the the one that we were talking about the just the Muppets. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, well, it was, you know, it was okay. It was very safe. And unfortunately, that's not what we ever created the Muppets to be. And he talked about He's like, the people who are playing the Muppets, the people who are doing the puppetry and all that stuff are on point. They know their shit. You should just let them do it and trust them, and you will get better product out of it. Um, And I agree with that. Yeah. Because there is, there is a little bit of rebelliousness to the Muppets that has been lost since they got sold to Disney.
0: They are, the advertising for this iteration is banking really hard on uh, selling it as like a return to form, uh, a return to what made the Muppets great in the first place. Though they're not usually, they're not
1: actually using any specific terms beyond that. Uh, We'll see. And it can be done. Uh, they did a bunch of Muppet shorts on YouTube for a while that were really good. And I think it was mostly just letting the Muppet actors play. And you only have to make like a five minute clip. They did a Muppets Bohemian Rhapsody, which is like one of my favorite all time videos on YouTube. <laughs> I hope that this is good. I guess that's what I got.
0: Like, Yeah, that's... Me too. I'll be watching it. It's only six episodes. Disney Plus. I already have Disney Plus. Like, why not?
1: Yeah, I Uh, mean, it's time I watch something other than Star Wars on Disney Plus. Like, there is the wider world on there.
0: So, this one's just... uh, We both love both of these guys. We've been talking a bit about vampire comedies recently anyway. Jason Momoa and Peter Dinklage are going to be in a vampire buddy comedy.
1: So you remember in the What We Do in the Shadows episode where I talked about why do another vampire comedy? Like, we already have What We Do in the Shadows. We don't need another. Right. It did not take them long to make it something that I am at least potentially interested in proving me wrong there.
0: Uh, It's going to be called Good, Bad, and Undead. Peter Dinklage is a descendant of Van Helsing. And Jason I'm Momoa in. is a pacifist vampire and they team up to become con men to pretend that Dinklage is killing a vampire all over and swindling people out of their money.
1: This is one of those things that we need to see way more than what we have seen before I can really like <laughs> give too much of an opinion. But every one of those words was great. Agreed. funny <laughs> <Like, laughs> Your basic concept here is rock solid. Oh,
0: man. Jason Momoa is a pacifist vampire? I'm so down.
1: Well, and it's fun, because we have we mostly see Jason Momoa as... I mean, mostly because I don't watch a whole lot of movies. Uh, Baywatch Knights. Kind of, yes. Wait, really? <laughs> yeah, he was Baywatch Knights <laughs> back in the day. Wow. I thought Stargate Atlantis was the old school reference I was going to make here. But, um, <laughs> we mostly see him as the kind of like tough guy, gruff barbarian character from Stargate Atlantis or playing Conan or playing Angry Pirate 90s Aquaman or playing Cal Drogo. So, I, I am interested in seeing Jason Momoa play not that. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see more range from him. And this is Uh, A pacifist vampire is definitely not that. (laughs) Uh, Plus, Peter Dinklage is just a national treasure. So, yeah, Dinklage is fucking international treasure. He is not American. We do not get to claim him. Is it? I thought he was. I think he's from Jersey, isn't he? Is he? I want to look this up. God, he probably is. We get to claim him, great. I don't know if Jersey counts. I've never been to Jersey, I shouldn't make Jersey I don't jokes. Know if Jersey... <laughs> it's it's so easy to do, but it's like so unfair as someone who has not been there.
0: Yeah, Morristown,
1: New Jersey. Oh. I was just like he's in Game of Thrones, he must be British, but no now that I actually think about him at all, that 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 is not the case.
0: Okay, so here's a weird one. Sony is developing a Madame Web movie. Really? Uh, and they just tapped S.J. Clarkson to helm the project. Uh, she's done a lot of TV directing, and that's about it. I mean, some good stuff, okay. a couple episodes of Jessica
1: Jones and stuff like that. But Okay, when we see a Madame Web movie... First of all, are they still trying to do, like, a Sable and Black Cat movie? I don't remember if that one...
0: I I don't know if anyone knows. They might not okay. know right
1: now. <laughs> I just... Second question, when we see Madame Web, do we mean, like, crazy old lady that's hooked up in a weird web-shaped machine? Or do we mean the former spider woman wearing a red trench coat wandering around being mysterious? That's it, also it, a great question. Okay, Because original Madame Web was, as I said, a crazy old lady who was wired up into a machine for reasons I never quite understood. And uh, she called Spider-Man to come help her out because the juggernaut was trying to kill her. It was Mm. a good story. They have never known what to do with Madame Web since. So they murdered her. And then they took another character they didn't know what to do with, the second Spider-Woman, because the first Spider Woman had come back to prominence, uh, and they're like, "Well, we don't know what to do with Julia Carpenter now. Why don't we have her go blind and get repl- and replace Madame Web as also Madame Web?" <laughs> and now it's the same thing, except she can walk and wears a red trench coat. I don't know. It's one of those that the, you might have more range to do things because nobody knows so little and cares. about the character. <laughs> But also, the whole point of Madame Web is that she can see the future, and she describes the future in web motifs. That's it. That is everything. I do not see how to make a movie off that.
0: Yeah, dude, I have no idea.
1: It is also not my job to make movies. Uh, This is one of the ones that I will believe when I see it. If they...
0: if they manage to make a Madame Web movie, I will be there opening day to see what the fuck that even means.
1: But I mean, if I'm going to go watch Morbius, and let's be honest, I'm going to someday go watch Morbius, uh, I am definitely going to give time to Madame Web. Like, that sounds so much more interesting to me, just for the sheer what-the-fuckery of it. <laughs> uh, it is, and I've mentioned it before, every time I go can't believe they would go that far like i can't believe that's the character they would go with they won up me i can't believe they like a venom movie finally go. i can't believe a morbius movies i can't believe a madame webb i i was sure that prowler was gonna come up before madame webb de- did or rocket racer why do we not have a rocket racer movie if we're why don't we madame have a Web?
0: prowler movie that's what i'm asking now
1: rocket racer and the prowler bam Give me $4 billion. We'll do this. I don't need $4 billion. I'll but take I want it. Million. So, I, so <laughs> I could do that and then do a bunch of other stuff. I would really quickly run out of money. But one of the things that would happen would be a Rocket Racer and the Prowler buddy comedy. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> uh, let's see. Frank Marshall, producer of Jurassic World Dominion. Is saying that hopes are that this is not uh, the end of anything, but rather the beginning of even more Jurassic Park movies to come, or Jurassic World is, uh, as it seems to be going from here on out, as it sounds like they're intending for dinosaurs to stay on the mainland, no matter what happens in Dominion.
1: Okay. So, on one hand... That is the most bullshit gobbledygook you could... This isn't the end. This is a beginning. That is literally like a Yoda line. And two, of course he wants that. He doesn't want the money pit to end. <laughs> he hasn't finished filling his pool with Scrooge McDuck gold coins that he's going to dive into and probably break his face, because that's not how gold works. Yeah, but if I had that much gold, I might try too. Oh yeah, at least like lay on the top. Actually, no, I would not. Because money is disgusting. <laughs> and and not just like a big fuck capitalism thing that I could go into on a podcast that's not this one, but I literally just mean money is... Disgusting. Gross. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I'd be dumping some Lysol first. <laughs> <laughs> just bathe yourself in Lysol and be like, all right, this was fun. Uh, give me the Lysol back. Right, now I'm going to break my face.
0: And <laughs> there we go. Uh, yeah. Ta-da. However, I mean, he's going to get that uh, fucking pool of gold coins because I don't see dinosaurs not making money anytime soon.
1: I just want them to try and be scientifically accurate again.
0: That would be cool. I'm I mean, totally and Jurassic, Park,
1: Jurassic Park was not perfect in a lot of ways. Even back then they were like, ah oh, well let's just make up the Velociraptor and have messed with the scientific view of things for, or the public view of science for years. Well But it was also To be fair one of uh, To be fair Oh you've uh, got to that point.
0: Oh yes. <laughs> oh I'm way beyond that now. In the novel they actually address that a little bit more because Even by the time the novel was written, a little bit more was known about the fact that, like, they were probably more feathered. Now we know that some of them were drastically more feathered, but I, like, I want to see that. But uh, in the novel, they point out that because people don't know that, they don't react the right way. They're, (laughs) they're. And so they are genetically engineered not to be dinosaurs, but to be dinosaurs in the way that people already view dinosaurs to be.
1: I guess I can kind of see that, although it's fun that they say that, and then Jurassic Park updated how the public viewed dinosaurs permanently. Right. Like, we went from viewing the Lost World, like, Land of the Lost bad TV show, to... Jurassic Park being our go-to for what a T-Rex looks like, but I, I I read this review once of the first Jurassic World, which is a movie that I enjoyed, but they talked about how it would have been so easy to instead of be like, look at this weird genetically modified dinosaur that we made up, blah 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 blah, just be like, so we made more realistic dinosaurs based off what we now know, and holy shit, they're so much more dangerous. Right. I agree. They, I, that's I a Jurassic see, Park movie right there.
0: I want to see more accurate dinosaurs. I think that's also an easy way to go for it. We'll see what actually happens.
1: I also live with a giant dinosaur fan, so I routinely hear all the weird new cool shit that <laughs> they have figured out and have announced about dinosaurs because there's new stuff like every week. Mm-hmm. And it's always cool. And like... Yep, I love the Jurassic Park T-Rex. It is classic. It is the first thing I think of when I see the T-Rex, like hear the words T-Rex. But we've had that for 30 years now. Let's do some new, weird, holy shit, cool things. I agree. But also movies about dinosaurs. I'm happy. I'm not I'm not unhappy about any of this news.
0: And then I have one last bit of news. And it just broke today and... Actually, very nicely ties into what we're going to be talking about today anyway. Big Finish is going to be relaunching its Doctor Who audiobooks, audio dramas.
1: What does that mean?
0: So they have had regular adventures from the 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th Doctors dating back all the way to 1999. That's going to come to an end okay audio drama 275 or whatever i I don't know how they number it or what but that's going to be the last one of those that's going to be replaced by them uh doing 12 new lines one for each of the first 12 doctors
1: the important question here beyond just holy shit that sounds like so much work ...is are they still going to get the original Doctors when they can to come back and do those?
0: Because like Sylvester
1: McCoy played the Doctor this year, or last year, on the audio dramas. Peter Davidson, who was a Doctor in the 80s, I mean, so was Sylvester McCoy. Like, that's cool if they're doing a relaunch. I, I read comic books, I recognize that relaunches are a thing. But God, I hope they still keep bringing back the original actors when they can. I know Christopher Eccleston's not going to come back. I know William Hartnell's dead, but I don't know. That's the that that is the thing I am curious about. Uh, the way
0: everything I'm trying to read through their announcement a little bit, it's worded a little bit weird, but they seem to think that this is going to expand their options even more. Uh, they didn't really have any audio dramas where they're able to make use of like Tenet. Or Smith, and now mm-hmm. that has a higher possibility of happening alongside the older doctors, uh, or even Eccleston, and.
1: Um, oh, I don't see Eccleston coming back for that. They, they're going to have to grab someone new, probably.
0: But it's now a possibility to to open up a way for him to return, where he's not showing his face. I guess I don't know,
1: <laughs> where he's not having to deal with the people that pissed him off. Right, he's just recording. Some we'll lines. talk about. Uh, The
0: other interesting thing is, it's the first 12 incarnations of the Doctor, so not Capaldi. Instead, there's going to be War Doctor stories.
1: Interesting. So that means no Peter Capaldi and no Jodie Whittaker. Right. Or, in theory, no one of the other ones that's harder to get. Um, Huh. I don't know. I've never listened to any of the Big Finish audio stuff. Um, apparently they do some of the Star Trek books that I've been listening to as well. But I hear really good things. I've been meaning to check them out. They're just kind of a pain in the butt to get in America.
0: Right. I haven't checked them out either. I understand some of them are extremely good. Just, for me, it's almost just that there's not enough hours in the day.
1: Yeah, that's really a major part of life. <laughs> uh that's all i got for news though cool that's uh that's pretty simple let's take ourselves a quick break and then we will find out about how just this once everybody lives yay are you my mummy yes yes tyler oh well that makes that (laughs) easy here here is the secret fact of it i am in fact your mummy I have always been your mummy. I will always be your mummy. I literally just watched this scene. <laughs> I like, came home, watched these episodes, sat down to do this.
0: Uh, Yeah, that's all I got. I, this... I That ends the story really quickly, if you were to just <laughs> let me know.
1: This is some of the most iconic Doctor Who I think has gotten in the new series. Like, there's, you know the classics of oh look it's the dialects oh look it's the cybermen because people like those for some reason oh look there's the master that's like the big three but when it comes to stories the ones that people really seem to remember is this one and blink and of the wrestle t davies era those are like the two huge ones um and honestly as i was watching this it was Really interesting because I haven't watched Eccleston in years. Mm. I think I watched Rose like once, and that's been about it. And so I had all of my uh, Doctor Who experience of the last couple years is way later than this. Mm -hmm. You know, 10 or 11 seasons later, which is, God, this came out in 2005. So this is 15 years old now this episode's in high school. Let's just take a moment to look at it that way. And it it was interesting to see how much Doctor Who has changed, and I was reminded of an interview with Russell T. Davies, the guy who relaunched Doctor Who, and he talked about how watching old school Doctor Who was really cheesy, and how they were trying to do stuff really well done here, but he was still hoping that in a few years you would look back on it and be like, this is kind of cheesy. He wanted to continue that same feel but for a 2005 era instead of a 1980 or a 1965 or whichever era and he definitely succeeded but this is probably the least cheesy this entire season gets
0: uh i agree i was gonna i was gonna say sort of the to add on to that like i think he succeeds through most of this season except for maybe this episode which is the most timeless of the season
1: But even then, with that, you still get bits of it. Uh, Jack Harkness in 2005 is very, look at this attractive man in 2005. (laughs) There's, uh, and, and that's not a bad thing, but introducing Jack Harkness, we talked about him in our last Doctor Who episode, where... We said that in a lot of ways, Bill was kind of a better queer representation because he was, she's a little less of a stereotype of like the, the queer person who wants to fuck everyone. Mm-hmm. But it is also really important to remember that in 2005, that was important. openly, yeah, an openly sexual queer person was really big to put on something like Dr. Who. Uh,
0: was it? He's just it, a 51st I'm, century man.
1: Yes, it's still a problem today of making queer characters basically asexual or aromantic in media a lot. Oh, they're gay, but that never comes up. They never have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a partner or whatever. Like, they're just the gay friend and that's how they exist. That was even worse 15 years ago. Jack is not that. It takes Jack no time at all. The first words he ever says is "Hmm, excellent bottom."
0: (laughs) That sums up. While creeping on Rose as she's like
1: about to die, and then he immediately slaps a dude's ass. Jack comes in like a wrecking ball and makes no apologies for who he is. And so, yeah, well, there's a real argument that Bill might, you know, coming from our especially in my case, cis white male perspective, or just in your case, cis male perspective, we might not be the best person to judge who is the best representation of queer culture. But Jack was so important for that still. And not just Jack, Russell T. Davies put a queer character somewhere in basically every episode. He found somewhere to drop that. Hmm. And it was jarring at the time. Not jarring like bad, but just like I had never seen anything like that. But as simple as the guy who owns the house, who has the like really good food that the, the homeless kids are stealing from, is sleeping with the butcher to get it. Right. That, that was the kind of thing that Russell T. Davies loved to slide into this show that I don't see as much anymore. Which is funny because now the show gets so much crap for being, I mean, from terrible parts of the internet that I love to make fun of, uh, for being social justice warriors or overly obsessed with representation. The show's way more subtle about its representation now. It just, you know, has a female doctor or has a black lesbian character. Well, and these old ones are like, Yep. Gay sex is a thing. Mm -hmm. We're going to make jokes about it every episode. Every episode. And from everything I can tell about Russell T. Davies, that's just how he lives his life. He is a very out loud gay man. So cool. But I'm glad you got to do this. And I'm glad that you got to kind of shape uh, science fiction culture in a lot of ways for the next, well, 15 years.
0: Yeah, because... Beyond Jack being important, if Eccleston wouldn't have done this season well, we wouldn't have all these other seasons of Doctor Who.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. There's apparently a thing of people being like, no, you can just skip the Eccleston season. And I do not understand that at all. Not one bit. I don't I don't get that. This was not my first episode. Of Doctor Who, of like the new series, but I remember specifically watching this one. My first one was uh, the the Weird Fart Aliens that took over. Oh Earth. um
0: Uh Boomtown. The one right after these?
1: No, the ones right before these with the Weird Fart Aliens. Oh, um They they crash a ship into Big Ben, yada 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 pig aliens. I don't the name of the episodes aren't super important. Th- those are the ones I had... Oh, World War Three. Yes. I had no idea what to expect. I didn't know this was a continuation of Doctor Who at the time. I was just like, uh, okay, who? I didn't even know what regeneration was until I finished this first season. And that first episode, I'm like, well, this is kind of goofy. And by the end of it, I was sold. And then these ones came on, and I was just like, holy shit, look what Doctor Who can do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um- I as far as New who goes I started in on them um, in order so Rose was my first Rose is mm-hmm. okay uh yeah, it was the end of the world f- that really hooked me where I'm like oh the the second episode of the show you're going to show me the end of earth that's some that's some out there sci-fi thinking and you have my attention uh, but mm-hmm. then it was these two episodes where I was like oh Oh, this show's amazing. I get you now.
1: Rose was a good intro to who Rose is. A good intro to how this person found the Doctor. The, the End of the World showed how brave they were willing to be. Uh, and then the other episodes did a good job of just setting up the like feeling of these two characters together. This is where they showed the risks they could take. Not just as like, we're going to blow up the Earth. But the emotional range they could do with these characters. And I find it eternally tragic, as as amazing as David Tennant is, as amazing as the David Tennant-Billy Piper combination was, it's eternally tragic that we only got three stories, so five total episodes, with nine Rose and Jack traveling together. Mm-hmm. Because that was such a good combination of the characters all together. Similar to my love of 12 Bill and Nardole, but in completely different characters.
0: Right. How would you characterize the Eccleston Doctor as compared to the others? Raw.
1: The Doc is damaged in this one. And you you get that from the very first episode. He is hurt when he gets angry. He gets Really angry, really fast. Uh, he's not as mopey as like Tennant could be. Tennant was the master of looking sad in the rain. That's not how Eccleston rolled. Eccleston, and, and the whole thing is so kind of brilliantly done because when we imagine the doctor, we imagine kind of a kooky look. Like David Tennant always had the like really tight pinstripe suits, basically. The Matt Smith looked like an old man dressed, a young man dressed as an old man. Um, Fezzes are cool. Yes, I literally did not know when I first started watching this in two thousand five that regeneration was a thing. I didn't know this was the same doctor. I had just seen like the Tom Baker doctor, uh, so I thought you know big scarfs and teeth and curls, and so I was so. At first, I was like, man, I'm really disappointed by this costume. But the, I mean, the U-boat captain look is what they call it here. It is, <laughs> it is a subdued look for a subdued doctor. He has just survived the time war, and I noticed this more. I think watching this after having not watched it for several years, but having seen Capaldi and the War the Doctor who... and everything he went through. His costume is still very similar to what the War Doctor wore, but it was much more simplified. It was much more stripped down. This is the Doctor who was rediscovering who he was after being a soldier. Which is the antithesis of what the Doctor has been his entire life.
0: And I, I agree with all that and just want to add on to me, uh, I mean the, the big word you mentioned already I would have, I would have described him as being damaged mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's trying to find something new to hold on to because he thinks he just ruined everything he actually loved
1: but on top of that it, it's so much more than that because it'd be so easy to turn this into like sad boy grim dark doctor with everything we just talked about a raw damaged kind of broken man but when christopher eccleston brought out the joyful side the goofy side of him You got a very rounded doctor that you don't always get with doctors. And I don't have a single doctor that I have a complaint on their choice of actor. You know, there's been bad writing, let's be honest. Doctor Who, as we've discussed, you get good plot, good characterization, or good special effects, but you never get all three at the same time. (laughs) Uh, This episode might actually break that rule because it required so little in the way of special effects that even the stuff that was kind of hokey wasn't,
0: was terrible
1: (laughs) it was good for the time yeah the the smile that eccleston gets when he's really happy when he is surprised when he has stolen captain jack's squareness sonic gun thing and replaced it with a banana is infectious when he smiles like that i find myself smiling like that which was (laughs) it it Balances out the like insane Rage that he gets when you first When he first encounters a Dalek
0: Oof that's a pretty emotional Moment too yeah that's a great That's a great moment from that episode
1: Maybe not an
0: overall super great episode
1: But it had some good stuff But but yeah Um, Terrible American accents Throughout that entire episode Everything this doctor feels He feels Strongly Which was an interesting way to introduce the Doctor, because it'd be so easy to have introduced him as, you know, the lonely god that he's known as later. But we get, instead of the lonely god, we get the oncoming storm, which is a term that he's used, that I think first appears in this season. And it is, it is everything about the storm. uh, Because that's the Dalek term for him, the oncoming storm.
0: I suppose as we, as we move into talking a little bit more about this episode in particular, I'll point out that uh, it was directed, both these episodes were directed by James Hawes and written by future showrunner Stephen Moffat.
1: This is the first episodes where we get to see how brilliant Moffat is really capable of being when his writing is on point and when he doesn't get too caught up doing mystery boxes. He doesn't have that here. We just get the clever, capable Stephen Moffat writing that we—that that is the best of his stuff. Before we dive kind of into the episode itself, what do you think of Rose? Because she is weirdly divisive. I still have a crush on Rose, so that answers that. <laughs> and we talked about this a little in the previous episode. <laughs> I still like Rose. I get more now why people who don't like Rose don't. Mm -hmm. But I do think she was the perfect companion for this Doctor. With the exception of the episode Father's Day, which I just hate. But that's one bad episode out of a 13-episode season. So they're still doing pretty good. Right. And even then, I kind of get it. I just don't like that episode very much. (laughs) It's just Rose makes bad decisions, the episode. So we dive into this episode. He is chasing a ambulance. He doesn't know that. He's chasing an object. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I actually thought it was interesting. There is no calm point in this intro, in this cold open.
0: Oh no, they go straight into everything.
1: Like, when I think of cold opens it almost always starts with, you know, uh, uh... Peralta walks into the Brooklyn 99 station, or, you know, let's see the Enterprise coming through. There's always that, like, moment to let you recognize what show has started. It doesn't do that. The first time I watched this, I thought I had missed something. <laughs> it's just bam, it's going. The show. The Doctor is chasing this thing. We get a fun little joke about how uh, Red Alert is only a human thing for everyone else. It's Mauve. And we get the first reference to dancing. Which, let's get it out of the way. For the most part, dancing means fucking in this episode. Oh, yeah. They don't talk about it. But it is clearly... Uh, subtext And it works both ways Like if a kid saw this And literally thought They were talking about dancing It doesn't hurt the story at all
0: No it's still also about dancing
1: <laughs> but, but it's also But about it's fuck.
0: also about fucking
1: uh, And it turns out In other language Or in other cultures Red alert means dancing Because apparently You need a dancing alert They a dancing alert In the center of London They don't know it yet In the middle of the London Blitz Rose is wearing a giant Union Jack T-shirt, which I thought looked super great when I was a kid. But these days, I found I was just distracted by how much that is just the equivalent of wearing a American flag tank top. <laughs> Rose uh, it was it looks going classier, the British though. It, does. it looks classier. It does, but Rose was going the full British equivalent of the Florida look.
0: Oh, she's a chav through and through. <laughs> I just kind of like chavy chicks, I guess.
1: <laughs> I guess so. It was kind of fun. All the old school doctors, and they had to, like, there was the BBC accent that you had to have. All the previous mm-hmm. doctors had it. They let this one have a northern accent, and they let their main character in a lot of ways. I mean, Rose is almost the main character of this first season have british slang and a british and and, uh a london accent specifically as opposed to proper bbc etiquette accent that i was not (laughs) doing right there when i said that but
0: you know we we already mentioned it once and it comes up pretty quickly from where we're at in the episode anyway i feel pretty privileged to get my ass slapped by captain
1: jack yeah i'm not gay (laughs) but i'd probably be tempted (laughs) <laughs> like, if, if John Barrowman decided that he wanted to try that, I'd be like, oh, man, like, I don't think so, but thank you. <laughs> like, um, We're like, oh, well, thanks. Before that, we get a couple of fun moments. Rose immediately ends up, like, getting stuck on a barrage balloon for some reason. She's like, oh, I guess I got to climb up this rope. She's, like, trying to chase the kid, but seriously the best option she found was climb this rope to get to the kid. No question on where the rope came from. Uh, considering
0: what would have happened if she would have caught the kid, uh, the best possible outcome happened with her getting caught in the yes. middle of the Blitz.
1: <laughs> Also, I do not know who plays that kid, but good job him from the very first moment. The first moment that you see him. He is creepy as balls
0: well the voice was noah
1: johnson okay good job for sure good job (laughs) noah johnson and whoever the creepy little kid was he's like five in it so i mean honestly all he had to really do is point but still good job that kid are you my mommy we have a fun little moment where the doctor goes looking for rose gets to the tardis starts talking to a cat one, I just enjoy the doctor interacting with cats because old school Doctor Who just had a reference that he loved cats. <laughs> like, it was just one of the things. And also, I find it very relatable that he just found a cat and picked it up and started talking to it because that's 100% what I, w- what I would do if the cat would let me. Mm-hmm. Um, And then he goes, in 900 years of phone box travel, I've never met, like... Uh, a person that doesn't wander off. And I think that's interesting because it brings up the ongoing debate of the doctor's age. The seventh doctor refers to himself as about nine hundred and like 50 or something like that. Okay. And then we don't get anything about the doctor's age again until the ninth doctor where he refers to himself as 900 years old. And everyone's like, wait, what the, what does that mean? You can't be, are you younger? Like, how does that work? And then in this, he refers to 900 years of phone box travel. And an ongoing theory was the doctor stopped counting the part of his life before he, you know, became was. the doctor and started traveling mm-hmm. through time and space. Which I thought was such an interesting idea. Like, you know, I'm, I, I was this old, but this is who, when I became who I am.
0: I mean, and honestly, depending on which incarnation of the Doctor you're talking about, and during at what time in their own timeline, they also might not count the War Doctor time period.
1: Mm-hmm. Also, they lie through their teeth constantly. That's just a thing. Yeah. <laughs> doctor uh, lies. They did do a thing through this era where he aged basically in real time. Like each season was basically considered a year of the doctor's life, but that means that nine and 10 regenerated really quickly. Uh, in right. ten's final episode, he refers to himself as 906. By the time we get to 11, like some later 11 seasons, he talks about being around for centuries, which I kind of prefer because it means you have so much more room to play with that doctor.
0: Be it Which we might get in the big finish stories. Yeah,
1: but be it in comics <laughs> or other stories, I, I I don't want to know the Doctor's specific age. But it is. I want each Doctor. I want the idea that we're not getting the Doctor's whole adventures, but we're just getting glimpses of his adventures through life.
0: I had kind of kind of forgotten how much like really dark comedy pops up in this episode.
1: Where he starts asking for, like, has anyone seen the object falling from the sky? And everyone starts laughing, and he's like, what? Like, and then you realize it's the middle of the London fucking Blitz.
0: Uh, and not as dark, but it was still got a little bit of a laugh out of me when when he runs into the kids uh, and Nancy. And he's just like, oh, no, this is brilliant. I can't decide if it's Marxism in action uh, or a West End musical.
1: Oh my God, and either both I would watch a West End musical about Marxism in action. Um, this is also kind of fun as a history lesson in some ways because um, as Americans, we we know that the London bombing things were a thing. Germany bombed London just constantly. We know that. But the reason I know anything about it because you know the American educational system is through fiction. The first time I ever heard about this was through the Chronicles of Narnia, because the kids are being taken away from London for their own safety. I learned more about how Britain viewed itself in the war through this episode than I think I have through any actual like history class or history lesson I've taken.
0: Oof. Speaking of kids being taken out of London, uh, how about that really little of super darkness they snuck in there at that dinner table too oh yeah
1: "Uh, I I was gone and they're like what happened he goes there was a man and then they changed the subject and like I didn't really think anything about it at the time but I definitely like today I was just like oh holy shit
0: yeah (laughs) right dude oh kid oh buddy oh that just got really fucked up real quick (laughs)
1: Yeah, and we're, we don't need to really go deeper into that, but it is it is interesting to watch stuff that I watched a bunch as a high schooler because I am catching things that I might have recognized was a thing, but I'm really, like, registering what that means now. Right.
0: How, how did you like uh, all the Spock references?
1: I enjoyed it. I definitely enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> it is... So on one hand... I love it because, you know, Spock, Star Trek always makes me happy. On the other hand, I kind of wish that any time they wanted to reference science fiction, we could go beyond just, oh, look, Spock, but also Leonard fucking Nimoy. So I get it. (laughs) Like, there's a reason the Spock is as iconic as it is. And it's because Nimoy knocked it out of the park every time he played Spock. Every time.
0: Yeah. I did notice, especially going through it and like taking notes and shit that... It's kind of clever how she keeps bringing it up in a way to be like, oh, I know that Jack isn't completely who he says he is. He doesn't get the Spock reference, so now I know he's not in, like, a, a realm that I know for sure, that sort of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. And I get where she's coming from on this one, that she wants to see some cool sci-fi stuff. And, I mean, she's seen a lot of cool sci-fi stuff, but she wants, you know, scam. The planet, Mr. LaForge. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wants to see some Jordan data crap, or Spock, as she puts it here, and she doesn't get that from the doctor, who is so blase about everything. You know, because you know the TARDIS has sensors that could have figured it out, but he's like, no, nah, I want to go in the bar. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's, let's walk in. And that's fun, but it does have to be like every once in a while what your expectations are, and then you get the doctor instead, and you're like, oh, okay. That is great, but, like, give me that sci-fi shit. <laughs> um, did, did you ever watch Much Rick and Morty? I've seen, like, three episodes.
0: There's an episode where that same sort of thing happens, where Morty keeps, like, we keep, you know, we keep doing this and this and this. Like, I want a proper sci-fi adventure. Like, bring me on that. or And then it just goes horribly, terribly wrong when he gets his wish. But anyway. I know you've already mentioned it. Fuck, The Empty Child is so fucking creepy.
1: Yes, I was actually wondering this from your point of view as someone who does watch a whole lot of horror movies. I list The Empty Child is one of the creepiest things Doctor Who ever does, and Doctor Who is really good at creepy when it wants to be.
0: Um, That might be one of the big things that keeps me coming back to Doctor Who is because a lot of its better sci-fi stories
1: build the tension by using just straight-up horror elements. Yeah, Um, the pacing is much more sci-fi horror a lot, but then they toss in zany doctor comedy. It's a really interesting blend of a show.
0: Blink does that to a really good
1: effect, actually. Um, Well, and you were talking about when we did Pilot, of how you said that was better than most horror movies you reviewed. mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Midnight does a good version. That is the creepiest episode of Doctor who I've ever watched.
0: Uh, and this is another, it's just, it's really well done creepiness. You're not sure what's going on. Uh, visually, gas masks are always pretty creepy. When you throw it on a kid, kind of double that. Like, it's it's high marks for me all around. It's, it's a good, properly creepy uh, setup. Which almost then, makes, as it goes into uh, the Doctor dances and how he deals with all the... Patients in the hospital
1: That's exactly what I was about to bring up It just makes it even
0: better Like it makes it even funnier
1: You have that great end point And you're like oh shit what's gonna go down Like this is creepy And then go to your room And then immediately again Referencing him being like I'm really glad that worked Those would have been terrible last words
0: But that's just like like good
1: Clever sci-fi That's clever sci-fi That's clever writing and characterization Mm Hmm. Uh, And all of this fits. Rose wants, as we said, she wants tech. She wants Spock. She wants, like, classic capable sci-fi. But one of the things that I enjoy about this episode is showing how much better the Doctor is than all of the, like, professionals. Yeah. Jack would have died at any point here. I mean, and Jack's not really a professional, but he's still a professional. He's a time-traveling con man.
0: Yeah, you have to be kind of professional to be able to pull that off.
1: And we know he used to be a time agent. Like, there is the professionals of Doctor Who, in which we never really see. But the Doctor is so much better at it, and he does it as much as he can without killing people. He does it without guns. Mm-hmm. His Sonic is a screwdriver. And, like, they make fun of it, but it also saves the day. Four oh, or five times after that,
0: like, making fun, it, fun of it in this episode is one of the best times of making fun of it too.
1: Whoever looked at the screwdriver and thought, "Ooh, I wish that was a bit more Sonic," <laughs> like. <laughs> what if you have a lot of cabinets to put together? <laughs> yeah, we ever bored. Uh, this kind of brings us to, as in our very loose following of this episode, the really nice moment of the doctor and Rose hanging out together while Jack is fixing his teleporter for them Mm -hmm. and you get a very you get a blasé answer from Rose at first and then you get a of like why do you trust Jack because she trusts him immediately even after learning he's a con man that doesn't really bother her and her answer of he's like you but with dating and dancing and all that stuff and it's very clear that Rose is being like Hint, hint. Like that. <laughs> By the that way, to I me. would jump
0: on that sonic screwdriver.
1: And the the romance subplot was always there in nine and rows, but it became so much strong. It became almost too strong in ten and rows. Sometimes, Mm-hmm. where the doctor had healed enough that he could do that. But it, it was a nice moment of letting them deal with that a little bit without being like punching you in the head. About it, and also it was just a way to talk about the Doctor was largely portrayed as an asexual being in the original series. There, I mean, there was at one point a rule that there is no hanky panky in the TARDIS, and this was a like, hey, that might not be true anymore.
0: Right. So, one of the, one of the things I noticed about this episode, and uh, I kind of feel like most of Doctor Who. Uh, the people he runs into in the episodes fall into one of two categories. They're either completely helpless without the doctor or they're actually pretty competent. They just are out of their league.
1: Yeah. And, and I like the know ones which one she is.
0: Yeah. Well, and I was going to say like Nancy is entirely competent. She's amazing, especially in the second half of this episode uh, of this two parter.
1: Yeah, when she decides to do something about it. I mean, she is completely unqualified to deal with alien warships and all that stuff. But his line, and it kind of traces back to seeing how the British view themselves and view that era of their history. But his line of, like, amazing. This tiny, damp little island being like, no, no farther I I don't know about Hitler, but you sure scare the hell out of me. That's him complimenting Britain, but that's definitely him complimenting Nancy. Like you, go on, do what you got to do. Uh, I he think is Nancy is so impressed by her.
0: I think Nancy could have made a good companion
1: in a different world when she didn't have a five-year-old son. Which, let's be honest, bringing a little kid on the TARDIS is just going to get him killed really quickly, right? although leaving him in the middle of the London Blitz is not a significantly better option, (laughs) so who knows? Nancy is completely capable. If she had continued on, it's never anything I thought about before you talked about it, but I certainly wouldn't have a problem with it.
0: Uh, I just love her poise when she's pointing out to the group of kids, like, well, then who's typing on the typewriter?
1: Hmm. But uh, not just that, where she's proving how brilliant and capable she is my favorite bit of nancy was how she was still trying to keep a sense of like normalcy for the kids Mm -hmm. like you don't eat until i finish carving you are you don't spread rumors about whoever owns this house Mm -hmm. even though she knows all the rumors and uses it to blackmail the guy later she's like you know I'm not passing judgment on what we're doing, but you're not going to be a dick about it at the same time. Like she calls people out in a way that the best companions do. And <clears throat> she's curious and she notices stuff. Damn, you're right. She would have been great. See,
0: <laughs> um, I, there was a point as much as I love Rose that I just wanted to sort of like reach through the screen and be like, Rose, of course we go out into the galaxy, find new life, and fuck it.
1: As much as I love Rose, Rose is a 19-year-old kid, so every once in a while you're like, "Grew up, Rose. <laughs> like, of
0: course we go out into the universe and fuck the universe.
1: You have literally hit on basically every like 19- to 35-year-old male that's been vaguely attractive to you that you've met. Also the 900-year-old alien. Like, you flirt with everyone, Rose. Are you surprised that Jack flirts with everyone? Oh, that's the thing that I didn't mention earlier when we were talking about queer representation. Jack kisses the doctor before Rose does. True. It's not until a few episodes later, but that was big. That's true. Holy shit. And the Doctor did not seem unhappy about it either. No. Like, it's like, yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. You're pretty good at that. Like, I thought it
0: was kind of entertaining how much Pompeii gets brought up in this episode.
1: And then they go to Pompeii.
0: And Pompeii is a big deal in a weird way, too, because Capaldi.
1: Yeah. Tennant and Capaldi and uh, the time-honored tradition of... Hiring someone to be the doctor who's already been on the show somewhere and just being, like, weird about it. Mm -hmm. Not just Capaldi. uh, What's her name? Karen. Oh, uh, Karen Gillan. Yeah, she's one of the. Karen Gillan was also in that. She was one of the the prophet girls. Yeah. Yeah. That episode was prophetic. Hey. hey. Uh... (laughs) But
0: with all those ties, I thought it was kind of funny how they kept bringing it up just on, like, a meta level.
1: What I was thinking about is this is the third World War II episode since the new series started. Mm. I mean, it's the first of them, but they also did uh, the World War II Daleks episode and they did Let's Kill Hitler. And I realized that the war took place over the course of like a decade for Britain. But I Mm -hmm. like to imagine, or I was enjoying imagining while watching this one, that all three episodes took place on the same day. Oh, just bounced all around. That's I love and that yeah, idea. And yeah, th- the doctor is just in three different places on earth at the same time dealing with different shit going on. Oh, I love that. <laughs> that's, that's my headcanon now. Congratulations. Um, so
0: a- as we move towards the end of the episode, there's there's a couple things this episode in the past has definitely uh, got my feels going towards the end when uh, as you referenced at the very beginning of the episode, everyone lives. This time around, I had something else hit me beforehand. Where okay,
1: tell me about that, and then I'll say my thing. As I was
0: sitting there, I was like, "Oh, I've I, I've never cried at this part before." I, um, and Rose just doing what she can to give Nancy that little bit of hope.
1: That's a very well done moment. That's a strong performance by Billy Piper right there. And just like I'm, I'm a Londoner.
0: I was born here. Fifty years, fifty years from now, ish,
1: <laughs> ish. Yeah, it, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. That is, I mean, you have to imagine that's like Pearl Harbor for us. But over the course of like two years of this happening, this isn't just one moment in time. This is them enduring. I don't know, in some ways it might be like what we're going through right now of months or years of enduring a terrible thing and figuring out how to have life continue on the whole time.
0: Well, and I think that's where it hit me. Like, I can't, I can't even describe how it would feel if a time traveler came from like 10 years from now and was just like, oh yeah, don't worry about it.
1: We it, get through this. On. Yeah. Yeah, that's a powerful moment. Uh, what I thought you were going to say before my thing I was about to say about Colin Baker is this: the moment it is probably the best acting Eccleston gives in this entire two-parter, which, as I said, is the high point of his career already, is when he is seeing if Jamie is going to be alive again. And he's like, just this once. Mm-hmm. Just let me have it this one It gives me chills. He is feeling that so strongly. Oh, it's so good. Every moment of that. But then the everyone lives, everybody. It is the best writing. In some cases, it's the best moment. Colin Baker, who played the Sixth Doctor, so he played the Doctor for two years,
0: Mm -hmm. described
1: that scene as his favorite moment in Doctor Who.
0: It's so, it's such a good moment. It's everything that
1: the Doctor's always hoping for and he hardly ever gets. And it makes it, It makes it that anytime he does have an Everyone Lives episode, I get excited for him because I remember this episode and I remember what a big thing is for him. And Russell T. Davies, who was running the series at the time, has talked about how he'll get like five pages through a script and be like, I haven't killed anyone in a while. I should probably get on that. (laughs) So giving him these episodes makes it all the more powerful.
0: And it leads to one of the best moments oh my god, I love the fi- the woman coming up to the doctor after Eccleston's <laughs> like, I am I think you're going to find that everyone's recovered. And it's like, my leg's grown back. Oh, there's a war on. Are you
1: sure you haven't miscounted? Just like, he's, he's already so confused about what's going on and he has to try to write off that. <laughs> um, oh, Also, the guy who played Dr. Constantine, I think they said his name yep. was. Which is great in a different respect, but because uh, it's supposed to be Constantine, just gonna point that yeah. out. Yeah, <laughs> uh, is the moment where he talked about how he's way back when he's like before the war started. I was a father and a grandfather, and now I'm neither. Oof. And it was a very small, short moment, but it was powerful. Mm-hmm. There was there was real pain in that guy's voice that I was very impressed by. Oh. Uh. Phenomenal episodes through and through. Mm -hmm. I honestly don't have any significant critiques of it. Like, there's parts that are cheesy, but it's Doctor Who. I know that going in. There's really brilliant moments. There's kind of over-the-top stuff. There's really subtle things. Um, This is one of the few exceptions of, you know, I basically get all three as long as I take into consideration that the CGI is 15 years old. Yeah. And like his ship still looked good. It was just like uh, literally the the only thing was uh the tractor beam looked pretty goofy.
0: Oh my fucking god. Jack tractoring back just for an extra second
1: just to compliment the shirt. Yeah. That that's classic Jack. Fucking the, Jack. <laughs> the, the bit where he keeps asking for an escape pod yeah <laughs> he's like we can put in an escape pod there is no escape pod i see your problem what if i get in the escape pod there, there is, is no, no escape, escape pod. pod what about under the sink and they're like no and they're like uh i didn't feel it this time because obviously i knew the doctors coming and save him because i've seen this episode like 400 times but that i remember that first one there was a real sense of urgency the first time i watched this being like Oh crap! Like, is Jack gonna die? Like, there's a TARDIS. Are you not saving him, Doctor? Because you should go save him. And then they do, and then we get him as a companion. And I mean, there's a push to bring Jack back as a regular companion now. (laughs) Like, no,
0: I, and I'm all for that. But I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that when he comes back, like, suddenly the Doctor goes from from Rose having to lead him dancing to being like, oh shit. Never mind, I could dance.
1: I, well, I and, oh, oh, you're going to hit on Rose? Well, I guess I got better uh, get my shit together.
0: Well, not just Although, that, like Rose is like, <laughs> I think Jack wants to cut in, and he's like, yeah, but with who? Yeah. Uh, it, that's a good way great. of doing a
1: gay joke mm-hmm. because you can you can make a joke about a character who is very loudly queer. But god, I always feel weird using the term queer as a straight white man. Like I'm always like I promise I'm not slurring. Um but you you can make that joke because it is a joke about you know being gay but without it being condescending to anyone. It's not at least I don't think it is. It's not rude to anybody.
0: Nah, he's just saying, yeah. <laughs> I know exactly what I'm doing right now. And he's almost flirting with Jack a little bit by doing it, too. By being like, look, 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 I can also dance. And the alternate title for this episode is the Dr. Fox, as we already.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Also, that look that Jack gives them while they dance around the TARDIS is that clearly he wants a full on throuple situation to go on here.
0: Oh, absolutely. Oh, 100 (laughs) percent. He wants to take them both down.
1: Oh, yeah. God, um, welcome to this classy episode of General Nerdery.
0: As soon as Jack was in the episode, it was going to get this classy. We knew this.
1: Oh man, uh, and Jack is always like that. His one of his first lines in Torchwood, which is just Jack was so popular he got his own TV series, and they were able to go full sexy. I mean, there was the orgasm alien in Torchwood. Ooh. Um. Have you seen that show? I have not watched any Torchwood. It's super goofy, but it's way more like adult. One of the aliens they have to take down feeds off orgasm energy. Oh, uh yeah. As you do. Yes, yeah. one does. But the first line he, Jack has in Torchwood is he's talking about how he can taste contraceptives in the rain just because of how it you know, like the the chemicals that we're taking and we're having going into the earth going back up into the sky thanks to and the coming back down and he goes well at least i won't get pregnant never want to go through that again <laughs> <laughs> like or in a few later episodes they see jack shows up naked on tv and he's like ladies your figures just went way up jack is kind of bringing sex and chaos onto the tardis in a way that it never has since
0: Alright, so while uh, we're on Jack, uh-huh. one more thing, just because I I don't want to wait to have to talk about it with some other episode. Jack as the face of Bo.
1: Oh, damn. Oh, I mean, I knew before I watched that episode that that was a thing, because you have to remember this is 2007 in this story. So, like, streaming was not a thing yet. Mm-hmm. Netflix was still primarily DVDs. Um, if you were a fan of something and it was hard to get on a regular basis like Doctor Who sometimes was you would watch clips on YouTube to survive but I remember watching that clip where they reveal that Jack is the face of Bo and just being like holy shit because before that you'd always been like well they've mentioned the face of Bo several times why is this a big deal other than we like this puppet yeah I mean and yeah, then face out Bo's the face of Bo great f- <laughs> And then you find out that the face of Bo is Jack. And one, I have so many questions. Jack, how did you become a giant head? But you also find yourself re-examining everything and rethinking about every moment that you've seen the the, uh, face of Bo before that. And I found myself looking at the face of Bo puppet and being like, it kind of looks like John Barrowman. Yeah. Like. Like, the cut of the chin is there. And I'm sure that was not on purpose. But because you, can, wasn't you the...
0: can convince yourself it was, though, if you need to.
1: I uh, Part of me wonders if, like, Russell T. Davies was just looking at the face of Bo Puppet, which I'm convinced he kept in his office, because he clearly loved it. <laughs> and was like, that looks like John. <gasps> I have an idea! Yeah. Yeah, what if and
0: Captain the... Jack finally morphed to match his ego?
1: <laughs> and then they drop it and never I mean really bring it up again like but we know Jack eventually will never be able to die and will live for millions and millions of years so they don't have to ever talk about it again and there's still room for it to be true Yeah. although I'd be so happy if the face of Bo came back in a new season yeah <laughs> Oh, that would be so fucking wonderful. Like, he goes, we'll meet again one final time. But it is implied that they've met several times. And I know that's because it's Jack, but we could also just do... There's been other times in between that haven't happened yet. Yeah.
0: Because things can happen in between that haven't happened yet because it's
1: Doctor Who. Yeah. Wibbly wobbly timey wimey, man. That's all we need.
0: Um, I don't know if I really have much more to say about the episodes, though, other Not than they're really. amazing.
1: I'm just so happy that you picked it because it was so good to go back to this era and get, as I said, the, the bits where you get every bit of Eccleston's range. Because you don't get that in, I think, any other Eccleston episode, which, again, there's only 13 of them, so it's hard to do. But we get funny Eccleston, we get angry Eccleston, we get inspiring Eccleston. And it turns out I really needed that right now. Yay. And as you said, it was the stuff I wasn't expecting mm. to find strong, that felt so strong this time.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I fucking yeah. love these episodes. <laughs> uh, what do we got next? Recommendations? Do we have any
1: recommendations?
0: Yeah. Uh Oh, let me re-bring mine back up. I had it up and then things happened.
1: All right, I will dive into mine while you look that stuff up. Uh, I have two recommendations for you today. They're both comic books because I'm me. The first one is Manhunter by Archie Goodwin and Walter Simonson. Walt Simonson later becomes huge for a run on X-Factor, for a run on Thor where he creates Better Ray Bill. He is one of the greatest comic book artists of all time. Um, and Manhunter was actually a backup in Detective Comics. Like they're like, all right, Detective Comics is 40 pages at the time. Batman takes up 32. We need eight-page backup stories. And it is a character who had existed uh in a couple different forms throughout the time of DC Comics, and they brought all of these different characters who were named Manhunter together and made the secret cabal that was trying to take over the world by cloning the original manhunter. And he has to go around stopping these clones of himself Hmm. from like, you know, evil secret spy organization. It is only I'm holding it in front of me. The entire story of this version of manhunter is God, like 50 pages long total. I would bet you. Mm, Okay, And it is one of the best comic stories I have ever read. Once you get used to the fact that it's, instead of 22 pages long for each issue, it's like eight pages for each one. It is short and sweet and very beautiful in how it's done. And it's not the deepest thing I've ever read, but it's just so well made. Uh, And then the other one, I have Quasar by Mark... I'm going to mispronounce this name. I'm sorry. Mark Grunewald. Okay. Grunewald was a major Marvel writer in the eighties and early nineties until he died. Um, To the point that it was in his last wishes that his ashes were mixed into the ink of a comic print run. Oh, shit. Of one of his books of uh, Squadron Supreme, which he considered his magnum opus. Uh, He also did, I believe, the longest running cap run under a single writer of all time. Damn, okay. Like 12 years or something like that. Like he... Yeah, that is a long time on a single character. Uh, And Quasar was a character who had been appearing in his books back and forth for years, originally known as Marvel Boy, as someone who inherited uh, what are called the Cosmic Bands. And he had this idea for a fun little space adventure story and no one really thought too much of it and he kept like it kept not happening because it was a new character and there's so many so many other things you can be doing instead it was kind of a risk and he finally had earned enough pull in marvel that they're like sure man you can do your quasar book and he'd been very carefully like making ideas for the book and not stealing them for other comic writing cuz that's a you know common thing you do of oh i had this idea it was great but I've got an issue of Captain America coming up, so I'm going to steal from that idea to make it work. Mm -hmm. And he'd been peppering Quasar or Marvel Boy through his appearances. He'd appeared in some Captain America issues and some run of the thing, and he finally get this book, uh, Greg Capullo. This is like Capullo's first book he ever draws. Okay. He's not the only artist on it. He's not the first one, but he's a pretty major one on it. And it is just a classic Marvel cosmic book. It takes place on Earth. You have all of the classic pathos of trying to figure out your place, trying to balance your real life and your fake life. How do you do romance? How do you deal with your family when you're a superhero? But you also deal with the fact that you have been chosen to be the cosmic protector. That the Kree are trying to like steal your stuff. That... There is a great evil that Eon, one of the like most powerful beings in the cosmos, has assigned you to fight. Uh, it is. It went on for like 80 issues, and then Quasar's rarely been used since then. Like, he got killed in Annihilation, which was a giant bummer. <laughs> and it was... I don't know if it was just because this character of Wendell Vaughn had become so tied with Mark Grunewald that no one else wanted to, like, fuck with that. But it is one of the best marvel runs i have ever read they've released three or four volumes i think and he was a member of the avengers for a while and he comes up in a book called uh, galactic storm where it's the avengers get stuck in a battle or in a war between the kree and the Shi'ar, which is like the two most warlike creatures in the galaxy oh the goddamn Shyar. yeah what do you got? What uh, have you figured your stuff out?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I just wanted to make sure, even though I know these names like by heart, I wanted to make sure they' were in front of me just to lessen the chance of me fucking up somehow. After last week's episode, uh, I are two days ago's episode <laughs> and everything <laughs> we were talking about. Uh, I kind of feel like this should have been the recommendation to be tacked on to that episode, but I was already pretty fucking set in what I wanted to to recommend for that one, uh, based on the fact that I just wanted to end on a happy note. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I don't give a shit this week. So so this week we're going with uh, Arkham Asylum, Serious House on Serious Earth.
1: Grant Morrison and... Dave McKean?
0: Dave McKean. Uh, Grant Morrison was getting set to take over some some of the other main Batman titles, but DC wanted to do a, kind of a smaller book to ease him into it and get the audience uh, a, a little bit more acquainted with him. And on the other side with Dave McKean, this happened right before Sandman happened, and they did it to give him more legitimacy going into that project.
1: This is one of the prettiest and creepiest Batman stories I've ever read.
0: Very heavily influenced, the, especially the first Arkham game.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, One of the major parts of this book is you're reading the notes of the founder of Arkham Asylum and watching him go insane. You find those same notes in the first Arkham game. That was my favorite, like... Little tie-in. Search-out quest, yeah. I loved that.
0: I have... Heard interviews with Grant Morrison where he has described it as being canonically one of Batman's nightmares.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: It's not something that has ever happened in the physical world. But all of these weird, twisted versions of his villains uh, and the, the asylum itself is, is this weird uh, nightmare that Batman is thrown into where you can really examine uh, his relationship to some of his villains and his own fears and what his character is railing against.
1: I know they originally wanted Joker to be way kinkier in this, and they wouldn't let it happen. Like, he was going to be, like, all in fetish bondage gear.
0: Yeah, he's he's coded gay in it anyway, but they were going to go, like, a lot further with it. That never happened. This
1: was shortly before stuff like the filth and invisibles where grant morrison had a lot of fun being on some of the kinkier side of the late 80s early 90s you said this was a prep for him to write bigger batman stories but i don't remember morrison taking over until the 2000s did that part just not come through or i i i kind of think that that's what happened is
0: it didn't it just kind of didn't go through even though that was the original plan I think it was supposed to be like, oh, this is going to go and turn into something more ongoing and didn't quite. Partially because it's weird and fucked up and how do you ongoing Serious House on Serious Earth anyway?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's not like they weren't getting work out of him. Morrison wrote from DC for. from somewhere in the 80s up to like 2000. And then he was only gone for like three years before. Oh coming back
0: he did do four issues of legends of the dark knight in 1992 before he took on uh way later on
1: oh that's fair okay oh yeah that's right he mentions some of that later on so he didn't do a huge jump in it wasn't until morrison was the biggest name they had going before he really took on batman
0: when does he start in on like Does he start in on properties that handle Batman before that, though? Like, does he start in on some Justice League and stuff?
1: He did a Justice League run in the mid-90s. I want to say, like, 96 to 99-ish. Ish. That is the defining Justice League run. Like, there's some weird moments in it you have to deal with... Electric blue Superman with energy powers kind oh, of Oh yeah, era. but that's
0: where you get like Rock of Ages and shit though, right?
1: Yes, you get Rock of Ages, you get World War Three, you get Mageddon. It is the Justice League run. Like warts and all. It is I define it as one of the best things the DC ever did.
0: Either way, it was kind of like this guy had been doing mostly British comics, we need to introduce him to more of the American side of things. So here's a smaller Batman story.
1: Yeah. This was during the time that... Uh, that that was what? Not Jeanette Khan, That was the the woman who was running Vertigo at the time. The head editor who's amazing and I cannot think of her name right now. And it's, uh, Karen it's, Berger. It's, Karen Berger, thank you. That's a giant bummer because she deserves so much credit. And she just kind of started reading 4000 A.D. Or 2000 A.D the British comic that brings uh, stuff like Judge Dredd and was like, oh, that guy's really weird and fucked up. Let's bring him over. It's how we got Neil Gaiman. It's how we got Alan Moore. It's how we got Grant Morrison, Jamie Delano, who never got the same recognition as the other three, but is still super fucking good. Yeah. Um, it really tied in British and American comics in a way that they never had been before, but they always have been since.
0: Uh, Yeah. And I just, I would I hope that one day we end up actually doing an episode about it because I think there's a lot to get into with the way that the villains uh, are portrayed in it uh, so I don't want to say too much but I if you're looking for an off uh, a weird Batman story that has inspired something that I'm sure many of you have played it's incredible and it's visually just a fantastic feast that... Uh, Dave McKean truly brings these weird nightmare dreamscapes to life in a way that is it still is, recognizable as being Arkham Asylum
1: it is one of these seminal Batman pieces but done in a way so different from what Frank Miller was doing and what everyone else has been aping ever since that I I really can't recommend it highly enough even though it's really outside of my usual wheelhouse of recommendations because it's dark and fucked up and weird <laughs> um, that's a good my recommendation, re- bud Strong yeah. recommendation <laughs> That's what I got Okay, that's uh, that's what you got That's what we got What you guys can get is uh, more of our show If you like and subscribe
0: That's right, subscribe and make sure That you get the new episode as soon as it comes out Uh, If you want to go check out all of our older episodes and anything else we're up to, you can go check out the website, www.generalnerdcast.com. You can contact us through the website or by emailing us, generalnerderypod at gmail.com. And while you're at the website, you can go click through those links at the top because we are part of the Earworm Podcast Network. That is E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can check out everything network-wise either by going through that link or the website eavearvyr Uh that keep you up on the other shows listen to me talk about horror movies over on fried squirms zach i know you I, and
1: malark yeah i about talk war about and... war and war gaming on uh the art of war gaming it's a very straightforward and... for a weird thing And maybe we'll get more soon because we keep talking about swear we're working on more projects. It's just, again, I know I've mentioned it a lot today. There's a global pandemic happening right now. COVID sucks and we're essential. Uh, 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 But we're also essential for doing this. Uh, That's right. We we really do appreciate you listening. We would love some uh, reviews. Good reviews, bad reviews. Really, the more that we hear from you, the better we can make a show that you guys would enjoy. Um, You can find us on social media at Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Just look up General Nerdery. We're what pops up. In the meantime, we are your Generals of Nerdery. I'm Zach. I'm Tyler. Dismissed.